Little kids and big kids alike both like dressing up and acting like their favorite characters from movies and TV shows. Little boys, for example, tying one of mom's towels around their neck as a cape and then flying, jumping from chair to couch to chair to couch to floor to until mom goes, knock it off. Little girls waving wands of power, throwing walls of ice up to stop the imagined enemies. Grown-up kids at Comic-Con walking around in Batman and Wonder Woman suits. Why? Why, why do we imagine to be and imitate these characters? Well, without delving deep into the psychology of all of it, we want to be someone better than ourselves. We want to be someone better than we are. I mean, I understand how it would be fun to be Spider-Man swinging on web lines from skyscraper to skyscraper through downtown New York City. But Spider-Man, he isn't real. I hate to break that to you. But you know what? There is a real, true superhero that you can imitate. In fact, you're encouraged to imitate this superhero in the Bible. That superhero is Jesus Christ. Be like Jesus. Imitate Jesus. Act like Jesus. Follow Jesus. And we'll see that message come up again and again in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. By way of review, last time in our study through the letter of Philippians, we noted Paul's attitude in the face of what could have been very discouraging, disappointing, and even frightening circumstances. As he writes this letter of Philippians, he is under armed guard in Rome, confined to quarters, waiting for his day in court before Caesar. It's going to be two years of living like this before his trial finally comes. Well, during that time, Paul, he lived with the very real possibility of being executed if his trial didn't go well. And then to make matters worse, while Paul was in custody, there were Christians in the city of Rome who, rather than working with Paul, they saw him as competition. And so they were actively maligning his character and seeking to increase their own power and influence in the church to Paul's harm and detriment. Well, instead of being discouraged, defeated by all of this, Paul was rejoicing. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, was being spread in places and in ways that he had never anticipated. The gospel was spreading through the Roman military and people serving at the palace. Other believers in Rome were finding a new kind of courage to speak out and tell others about Jesus. Even though some were preaching the gospel out of envy and selfish ambition, the message about Jesus was being spread throughout the city of Rome. And so whether Paul lived or died, Christ was being honored and proclaimed, and that was what mattered most to him. We saw that the key to finding joy in life, even in difficult and challenging circumstances, 
is becoming Jesus-focused and others-focused and moving ourselves out of the center position in our life. Self-focus robs us of joy rather than giving us joy. It's a feedback loop of disappointment. Putting Jesus in the center of our life makes it possible for us to find joy in all circumstances. Well, today we're picking up our study in verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. Hopefully you have your Bible and you've already made your, your way to Philippians 1 verse 27. It begins like this. It says, Paul is writing, says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul starts out, he says, whatever happens. This verse, it connects with what, what, what Paul has been talking about in the verses prior. In the previous section, which we looked at last time, he was talking about the possibility of being executed if his hearing before Caesar didn't go well. He talked about joyfully struggling between the thoughts of dying and the thought of living. On the one hand, he welcomed death, knowing that it would mean he would be with the Lord in paradise. And on the other hand, he welcomed continuing to live, knowing that it would mean more opportunities to serve Jesus and the Philippian believers and the other Christians. Well, now, continuing that train of thought, he says, whatever happens, however it turns out, Regardless of whether I'm executed or I'm freed from prison. And further, whether Paul and the Philippians ever see each other again. He says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence. He says, none of this should have any bearing on the Philippian believers' own determination to follow Jesus. They should follow Jesus no matter what happens with all of this. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, it's impossible for any of us to live a life good enough to truly be considered worthy of the gospel of Christ. The goodness and the love of God given to us through the gospel of Jesus is far more than any of us deserve or could ever be worthy of. We're forever in a state of gratitude and indebtedness before God for our salvation. That's not what Paul's talking about here, though. Rather, Paul is talking about something else. He's telling us to live in a way that is consistent with the teaching and the life of of Jesus Christ. So pulling these thoughts together, Paul is saying to the Philippians and to us by extension, no matter what happens to him, whether he lives or dies, whether he is able to return to Philippi to visit or not, uh, no matter what happens to them, they are to act like Jesus and serve him with their lives. And there should be an obvious connection here, an application for us too, that, that this speaks to us exactly where we're at too, no matter what kind of situation that we're in. No matter what happens to us. No matter what. We're to act like Jesus and serve Him with our life. He says that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one 
for the faith of the gospel. The need for unity among us as followers of Jesus is pressed home here in a very strong way. In the one spirit, striving together as one. Well, how is that possible to have that kind of unity among us? Well, first, it begins to be possible when we are embracing the first part of this verse where he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, it begins, this unity begins to be possible when we are acting like and serving Jesus with our life. Second, there needs to be a compelling shared interest among us large enough to make our differences unimportant in comparison. The most compelling reason in the world for unity is the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we understand and we really appreciate the significance of it. Think about this. The creator of the universe, capital C, capital U, has stepped into our time-space reality, becoming one of us, to show us who he is in a tangible way, to die, to rescue us from a fate of eternal death and separation from him, and make it possible for us to have a personal relationship with him forever. Can you think of any difference between you and me, between you and anybody else on this planet that can justifiably take precedent over that. Any differences that we have with each other are as nothing in comparison to the salvation that God offers us through Jesus Christ. You see, when we let our differences divide us within the church, it usually means, one, we're not imitating Jesus, and two, we're failing to appreciate the significance of the salvation that he's provided for us. Let's continue with verse 28. It says, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The believers in the church at Philippi, they were facing some kind of opposition and struggle. We, we're not told what it was. The main point here is not about what the particulars of the opposition was, but how we face opposition of any kind that comes against us as followers of Jesus Christ, whether it's people or circumstances or a virus or anything else. There are four key ideas in this passage for us to keep in mind when facing opposition as followers of Jesus. And the, the first one is found in verse 27 when he tells us to stand firm. We need to hold our ground and continue to trust in the Lord. We need to cling to the Lord, trusting in his love and his faithfulness and hang on to the good promises that he has made to us in Jesus Christ. We are his and he is ours through the saving power of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what anybody tells us otherwise. That is truth. And that has got to be the foundation upon which we are 
building our hope. The second thing here is also found in verse 27 when he says, in the one spirit, striving together as one. We need to stick together. We need to stick together. An effective tactic in battle is to create internal division within your enemy's ranks. If, if you can cause your enemy to begin to fight among himself, you have weakened him considerably. This is a tactic that Satan employs against his opponent, the church. And he uses it to great effect, doesn't he? Creating division within the church. We, who are supposed to all be one on one team, fighting for one purpose, serving one Lord with one spirit, we begin fighting with each other. And Satan loves it, and he gets the upper hand when that happens. Church, we need to stick together, strive side by side as one. We must not let the opposition divide us. We must continue to hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ as bigger than any of our differences. The third thing that's mentioned here is in verse 28. He says, without being frightened in any way, we need to be courageous. Our refusal to give in to fear and intimidation will be assigned to those who oppose us, Paul says, of God's final arbitration and judgment of all things. He says those who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ will ultimately be destroyed. And those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ will ultimately be saved. Think of Stephen's unflinching courage even while those who opposed him in Acts chapter 7 were stoning him to death. Stephen, he looked up to heaven and he saw the Lord welcoming him. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he prayed for those who were stoning him, for those who were killing him. Just before he died, he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. That final scene was a tormenting brain worm for those who killed Stephen. It aided them for the rest of their days, didn't it? Well, fourth, verse 29 For it has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. We need to remember that suffering is part of the deal for followers of Jesus Christ. Now, we live in a very sheltered situation as Christians in this country. Christians have been able to worship and share the gospel with others in this country without any real persecution or suffering. We take it for granted. It's it's a right in our country. And I, and I'm sure you, are genuinely grateful for that. The idea of suffering for the gospel is a bit of a foreign concept for us in this country. We know, though, that it happened at certain times in history. We know that it happens in certain parts of the world, even on our own day. It just doesn't happen here very often. In the days in which the letter of Philippians was written, though, Paul experienced a lot of suffering for being a Christian, including, at the moment, being held in custody at Rome. The Christians in the church at Philippi were also facing some kind of suffering at the moment. 
for their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul encourages them here saying, don't let suffering for Christ discourage you. God has granted to you to suffer for the gospel. It is a blessing, he says, an act of grace, a privilege given to you by God. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote this. He said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4.12, he writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in, as, in so much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. I, w- I want to point out here before we move on that it's really important that if we suffer opposition for our faith in Jesus, that it's really because of our faith in Jesus, not because we are being religious, obnoxious, overbearing, judgmental, know-it-alls. Peter said, make sure you're suffering for the right reasons and you're not just bringing it on yourself and getting what you deserve. If you find yourself suffering for being a follower of Jesus, remember that it's part of the deal. Paul and Peter both tell us to consider it a privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. So the four things for us to remember when facing opposition as a follower of Jesus that Paul mentions here in this passage is we need to hold our ground and continue to trust in the Lord. We need to stick together We need to be courageous, and we need to remember that suffering is part of the deal. Well, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul comes back again to the importance of unity among us in the church. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. He says, do you really want to encourage me and bless me and make my joy overflow? Be unified with one another. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be of the same spirit. In verses 3 and 4, he gives us some real-world ways to have unity with each other. And they all come under the idea of being humble. Yeah, there's that H word that we don't like. Humble, humility. He says, don't be motivated by selfish ambition. 
Don't be conceited and full of pride. Value others above yourself. Look out for the needs of others. Put them first. Being humble creates an environment for unity to grow among us. While selfishness, ambition, conceit, pride destroy unity. In the next verses, Paul presents Jesus as the ultimate example of humility for us to exemplify, to follow, to imitate. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, when we appreciate how amazing Jesus Christ is, when we, then, then we're able at that point to be much more motivated to imitate him, to copy him, to mimic him, to follow him. See, in these verses, Paul, he lays out for us the amazingness of Jesus. We hear of the amazing Spider-Man. Well, here's the amazing Jesus highlighting what he's done for us, what great lengths he took to rescue you and me and give us a new life and future. Jesus Christ is the greatest hero the world has ever known. He really did rescue this world. Really, literally rescued this world. When we can take hold in our mind of how heroic Jesus is, when that idea gets deep down inside us, there's this natural desire then to imitate him that springs up inside of us, just like a little boy wanting to tie a cape around his neck and start flying around the living room. Because he thinks Batman and Superman and all these guys are cool. Well, this is Jesus, and he's cooler than all of those. Some believers... I mean, some scholars believe these verses, beginning with the last part of verse 5 through verse 11, may have actually been part of an early Christian hymn sang by the churches. Or maybe it was part of a poem or an early Christian creed that was commonly recited among the churches. Whatever its origin, this passage is one of the most profound and concise descriptions of the amazingness of Jesus that's found anywhere in the Bible. Beginning in verse 5, Paul writes here, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And now he begins to highlight and describe Jesus. He says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Although Jesus was and is fully God and had all of the rights and privileges and power available to him as God, he set that aside to live among us as a human being. Verse 7, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. He was the creative power who fashioned worlds. He became a helpless baby needing his mother to hold his head up. He had no limits to his strength and power and knowledge. He became a man who needed to breathe air and eat food and sleep. 
He made himself nothing. He emptied himself, setting aside his incomprehensible riches and power, becoming poor in order that we can become rich through and from his chosen poverty. Taking the very nature of a servant. God the Son, he didn't just become a human being, but he became a menial class human being. He didn't take the easy way out. He could have entered our reality possessing great power, position, prestige. He could have come as a wealthy, powerful king of a great nation. He could have chosen a life as a human being that was full of luxury and ease, but he didn't. He didn't choose that kind of life as a human. Instead, he chose a life down in the muck and the mire where people have to fight and scrape for survival. Since he was being made in human likeness, God the Son, he became a real human being. He didn't just look like a human being. He was a real human being. He really was one of us. The people who were alive in those days, they could take hold of Jesus and feel the warmth of his embrace. They could hear the words coming from his mouth. They could see the emotions being expressed on his face. He was a real human being who could be touched just like you and me. In becoming a human being, God touched us in a deeply personal way. See, it's one thing to tell me that you know what it's like to be me. It's another thing to become me. Putting on my skin, walking in my shoes, living my life, experiencing the things I experience, knowing firsthand the successes and the defeats, the excitement and the heartbreak, the laughter and the tears. That's what God did for us through the Son. He became one of us. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. So not only did God the Son become a real human being with all of the limitations that come along with that, not only did he become a human being born into poverty rather than privilege, but he faced the same terrible life-ending experience that we all have to face, death. He died. Even death on a cross, it says. So not only did God the Son die, but He died in one of the most cruel and disgraceful ways possible in the days that He lived among us. Crucifixion was a form of execution that was reserved for slaves, for outcasts, for lowlifes, losers, foreigners, the most despicable of criminals. God the Son, He held nothing back. He gave up everything for us. And he did it all willingly. He, he wasn't forced to do it. 
He wasn't forced to humble himself, to empty himself, leaving his eternal place of glory, taking on poverty and disgrace. He wasn't forced to lay his life down in obedience to the Father as a sacrifice for us. It was a willing sacrifice. He fully embraced it for you and me. Verse 9, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every realm of existence from the highest to the lowest and everything in between will acknowledge and submit to the authority and the rule of Jesus Christ. Not all will come willingly. Not all will receive the salvation God offers to Christ. Not all will choose heaven over hell. Not all will choose glory over disgrace. But all will bow down to Jesus Christ, acknowledging His sovereign authority and rule. Everyone. In closing, I want you to consider how amazing Jesus is. How heroic the things He has done for you are. He's the one true superhero. Can you think of anyone you would rather imitate? Can you think of anyone more worthy of your devotion and imitation? Put on the cape of Jesus, so to speak, and follow Him. Act like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank You for Jesus. What what an amazing human being He was. What amazing things He did for us. What amazing things He continues to do for us. We thank You, Lord, that You gave up Your life for us, that You swooped down to this broken, dark, lost place and You have rescued us. Fill each of us with a, with a newfound uh, joy and excitement about that, Lord. That You are our hero. We want to be like You, Lord. Fill us with a, with a desire for that this, this week in particular. That this week, we, we want to be like Jesus. We want to act like Him. Imitate our hero. Make that so on us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.